Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast, where sound effects happen from time to time. Uh, thank you for joining us. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. I write for Slash Film. With me, as always, is my scintillating and far more intelligent co-host, William. Please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for The Rap and other places as well, and I am scintillating. And uh, what would you say? Was more attractive? I said you were more intelligent. Oh, but more attractive, too. Let's not go nuts. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome back to Critically Acclaimed. Review new movies on this podcast. And after a pretty light first week in January, we only had two movies to review, everything fell down like a ton of bricks. We have well, so many movies to review this week. Uh, we've uh, you, You've pointed out the sort of um, two ways of January. Uh, for us critics, it's typically a pretty dark time mm. because we have already written our top ten lists, presumably. We've seen all of the big uh, awards contenders, presumably. And January is where they just start dumping off the stuff that wasn't good enough for award season. Yeah, the low-key uh, genre films, the movies the studio didn't know what to do with. Just the, 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 the chaff. Now, uh, those of us who live in Los Angeles have seen all of those awards bait movies. Mm-hmm. But for the general public, those movies don't aren't all released nationwide necessarily on Christmas. Yeah. And around January, that's when they start making their way out to the public. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of really great movies first opening in many parts of the world. Yes. So we complain about January for everybody else. It's, it's a party. Yeah. It, it is a bit of a disconnect. Uh, I think, uh, between the film critic community and the m- mainstream audience at large, uh, which is just the fact that we just see a ton of movies. Yeah, it's just yeah. a little thing regarding that. But but we have uh, we have so as such we have a great mixture of utter gold and complete trash. Yes, we do. To, to review this week, we have eight movies to review this week. We're going to be reviewing the new Gerard Butler thriller Plane. We're going to be reviewing the House Party reboot. House Party. Uh, we're going to be reviewing a new slasher. <laughs> you made it sound like those those were two movies. Yeah. We're going to be reviewing a new slasher uh, co-written by Kevin Williamson, the guy who wrote Scream, uh, called Sick. It takes place during the COVID uh, lockdown. Uh, we're going to be reviewing uh, Jafar Panahi's latest film, No Bears. We're going to be reviewing the experimental horror film, Skinamarink. Skinamarink-a-dinky-dink. That's it. That, indeed, indeed. Skinamarink-a-doo. We're going to be reviewing... Uh, the decidedly less swank horror movie, <laughs> The Devil Conspiracy. We're going to be reviewing uh, Sheen Ultraman from the makers of Sheen Godzilla. And we're going to be reviewing the new Hirokazu Koreeda film, Broker. That is uh, whiplash in every single film. <laughs> every single segue is going to be a complete, uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch moment. So uh, we will strain to uh, do segues from one review to the next, uh-huh. but I think we'll just sort of say titles. We, when we, there was a time when we were podcasting when we would just get bored with it and just say, segue, uh, and then yes. we would just change subject, <laughs> and then maybe we need to go back to that. Uh, Whitney, I leave this to you because I don't, uh, mm-hmm. I'm going googly-eyed just looking at the list. Where <laughs> do you want to begin? Googly-eyed in a good way? Like, uh, like dazzled? By no. the films on this list, or just no, like, a little, you know, like, you know, like a little those, bit dazed. You know those uh, at Halloween time, you can get like uh, uh, sunglasses, but it's like big popping out eyes, but they're on like slinkies and like okay. basically my eyes are falling out of their heads and dangling right. around like click clacks. Like, <laughs> what, what do you want to start with? Well, uh, I, I suppose the major theatrical release is Plane. I, I'm sure uh, it is, but the question is, which Plane movie? 
Or did you, uh, we're not all good. Yeah, this that, that, that's that's the pun we keep on making. It's called plain, and the yeah. title is quite plain, and yes. indeed the movie is quite plain. Yeah. Uh, Gerard Butler plays Gerard Butler. Uh, this time he's a pilot. He's a commercial airline pilot, and uh, he's flying for this kind of rinky-dink airline. Mm. Uh, and he's flying from Singapore to Tokyo, and wouldn't you know it, there's bad weather ahead. He advises they fly around it, but no, nothing doing. Yeah. Uh, the airline insists that he fly through, uh, and there's this very brief introduction to all of the the passengers. It's uh, There's only like maybe 13 or 14 passengers on the flight. Mm-hmm. Each one has a single personality trait. They're really not that sophisticated as characters. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, they're also tra- extraditing a prisoner they, oh. who's been on the run for murder for many, many years, and they caught him in Bali, and they put him on the flight. Um, he's played by Luke Cage. Uh, oh, Mike Coulter. The, Mike Coulter. That is the yeah. actor who played Luke Cage. He's not yeah. actually played by Luke Cage. I, I, like, I like Mike Coulter as an actor. He's cool. Yeah. He, he, yeah, he's really cool. And he was serving in the French Foreign Legion. He's got amazing biceps, and he's mm. very handsome. And would, the, the character or Mike Coulter? Uh, Mike Coulter is has amazing biceps and is incredibly handsome. The character, however, served in the French Foreign Legion. I, I don't know. Maybe Mike yeah. Coulter's really method. Uh, maybe <laughs> so. He enlisted. I'm not going to let Plane <laughs> be just some like hackneyed bullshit I just show up to set for. I'm going to join the American Foreign mm-hmm. Legion. I'm going to skin potatoes for mm-hmm. a year. That was the gag. They used to have the Foreign Legion when I was oh, a kid. Yeah, there would always be peel, your punishment of, is to peel potatoes. A lot of yeah. peeling potato punishments. Yeah. Well, why would why, why do you have to peel them? I mean, can I don't you know, just bake a potato? Well, I think they were boiling them. Oh, maybe so. Even so, you can still use the skin. Yeah, yeah just no snack reason. on that stuff. Yeah, I understand. Uh, <laughs> there's no potato peeling in plain. Pass. <laughs> Hard so, pass. So sorry. No, no uh, the bad weather forces the plane down. Uh, Gerard Butler, being the brilliant pilot that he is, is able to land it on this small island in the Philippines, which is overrun. And they say this multiple times by uh, uh, terrorists and separatists, or uh, terrorists and separate, like two separate groups. No, it's like one one group. Of, or no, they. I think they. I think they say criminals and separatists. Oh, uh, that, that still sounds like two groups. Uh, the, so just because you're a separatist doesn't mean you're a criminal. No, it's it's one united group, but they okay. refer to them as uh, as <laughs> criminals and separatists. Okay, uh, there's just in a uh, general sort. What, what rather, are their what are their principles? You know what? We never know. We how never you, learn what those things how do you are. Call them separatists. If we don't say what they're separate. Maybe we support them. Uh, what we know is that <laughs> maybe they're, they're on their side. They they're hoarding weapons. Uh-huh. Uh, they have a habit uh-huh. of taking people hostage, uh-huh. uh, and the Filipino government is so afraid of of them that they don't even go to that island anymore. They uh-huh. essentially have claimed that island. Uh, so yeah, Gerard Butler lands the plane. They get off, and uh, now it's up to them to be kidnapped and then it's up to Gerard Butler and Mike Coulter to go rescue them in, in mm. bloody gun firing action sequences. Got it. Uh, and of course there's all uh, the perfunctory cuts back to the, the base where uh, uh, it's Tony Goldwyn play, oh, that, plays like uh, yeah. the, 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 the the guy the, looking at all the screens the guy calling is like, yeah, yeah. I gotta call in call in some help and it's we can't call the American militaries, but I know some guys. You know, yeah. that, like, like, I love I love the action movies where we keep cutting back to some kind of war room. Yeah. Like yeah. in the under siege movies where it's the same people in the war room, even though like this one's about terrorists who hijacked a battleship. This one's about terrorists who hijacked a train. Same four guys. <laughs> Everyone's the same four guys. The one that's funny is, uh, did you ever see Big Game? I never saw Big Game. Big Game, fun movie. I'm actually always surprised that it wasn't like 
more popular. Uh-huh. Uh, but Big Game was the follow-up film from the guy who uh, directed Rare Exports. Oh, okay. And it was an action movie. He starred the kid from Rare Exports as a kid who was like uh, told to go off on like a... Um, you go off into the woods, you hunt the biggest game you can find, and when you return, you'll be a man, my son. That uh-huh. kind of thing. Uh, except while he is uh, out in the woods just hunting for, you know, elk or whatever the fuck, uh, Air Force One crash lands in those woods, and he's the only person <laughs> He's the only person who can protect the president oh, from terrorists it. who are trying to kill him. The president's played by Samuel L. Jackson. It's Perfect. great, and we keep okay, cutting. I remember back, this movie, now. and we I keep have... cutting back to like CIA headquarters, where it's like Victor Garber, Felicity Huffman, and Jim Broadbent. It's but, like, oh, like some like classy actors, like, <laughs> way too good for like. Just, and like, it looks like they filmed those scenes over the course of a couple of days. Like, mm-hmm. it's like weird <laughs> that we spent all that money on the people who are. It's like when you're watching a Hallmark movie and they got like Vivica Fox, but they, she never leaves her desk. Yeah, they, they clearly had her for, like, three hours yeah. in the middle of her day, and that's clearly her like, so, office. So, so she'll talk They went to, to her, yeah. Yeah, so just, she'll talk to someone opposite her desk, and then they'll film a couple more scenes of her just talking on her phone, saying, mm. where's that Santa Claus story I asked for? Which they cut in later in the yeah, movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's in the same outfit. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of, lot of respect for those scenes. You gotta, yeah, you gotta t- you appreciate them. It's like, could, t- could you yeah. lay out the plot and the context and the stakes, please? Tony Goldman's like, fine. Well, it, it's it's a little bizarre because at first it's like a, a publicity spin. It's like this plane went down. We don't know where they went because their radio went out. We have to spend a little bit of time finding them. Yeah. How are we going to communicate this to the press? A plane is missing. Yeah. We're going to have to have a statement. And well, yeah. what, what do we want the news story? So at first it looks like it's going to be spin. But then he calls up, like he puts down his phone. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks. Well, it turns out I know like these mercenary guys and they have a bunch of guns and we're going to send them in. Like <laughs> just, what, just random dudes? Kind of, yeah. Okay. To avoid an international incident or you just know some guys I, I guess that's they the, need some work? That's the implication. There's a lot of absurd things like the, these mercenary guys like carry around their payment into action sequences like there's this big satchel of cash <laughs> it's like it seems kind of incautious it's to gotta me, be a better yeah. way <laughs> get, a, get a po box mail yeah. it to yourself uh there's you know some g- generically evil vaguely racist stereotype mm-hmm. terrorist characters which yeah. are sadly pretty par for the course for a movie yeah. like this everyone on this and, island uh, yeah. is evil and gerard butler gets to you know Put on a black t-shirt and shoot a bunch of guys. Yeah. Does he play a guy who isn't supposed to be badass, who becomes badass, or was he badass then became an airline pilot? Uh, he at least at least they don't have that line of dialogue where it's like, yeah, I used to he used to serve. Yeah. He used to be a marine. And he has the most kills. No, none of that. Um, okay. But he is uh, disgraced. He has to work his way back into uh, the world's good graces because he choked out a passenger once who was being a dick on a plane. <laughs> Like he turned around and punched Gerard Butler in the face, so he choked him out, and that kind of well. Made I mean, th- that's not the worst. I I saw um I, I last year I watched every single Elvis Presley movie. Uh, which, we, we we admire your service. Yeah, that was not easy. I'm telling you, man. Like, there's a handful of fun ones, but that's he did over 30 <laughs> movies. Most of them stink, like really bad. And they were each shot in like a week, like a, a piece or early something. On, yeah. Early on in the Jailhouse Rock King Creole days. There were some real movies, but after that, it was very, very low rent, just throwing out a movie. Basically, we're here to sell soundtracks kind of vibe. Occasionally, they were fun in spite of themselves, but usually they were just terrible. Um, But there was one, I think it was Paradise Hawaiian Style, Uh uh, where 
it opens with Elvis Presley and he's a pilot and he's also a disgraced airline pilot. But the thing <laughs> is, it's a remake of an Elvis movie. There you go. Well, the thing is, but the difference is that Elvis, the thing that's supposed to be like humanizing him, like, oh, he's got problems just like the rest of us. Uh, he has been kicked out of every major airline because he sexually harassed like the stewardesses. <laughs> oh, that scamp. Yeah, what a fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the start. That's the that's, of your that's, that's the plot of the movie, is oh it? Oh my okay. god, it gets worse from there too. That one sucks. Anyway, so at least Gerard Butler's better than Elvis. He, uh, yes, Gerard Butler <laughs> overall in terms of cultural impact, greater than Elvis. Uh, I'm oh. I appreciate that Gerard Butler is permitted to be Scottish in this movie. Yeah. He plays Americans a lot, but he's really playing Scots. Yeah. Uh, I rem- remember there's back even in, a remember- line of dialogue yeah. early on, which they clearly wrote after they cast Gerard Butler, where he's talking about have some haggis ready for me. Like he actually says, have some haggis <laughs> ready for me. It's pretty astonishing. I rem- back in the badass action movie days of the eighties, mm. they would have these, you know, big muscly guys. And, um, you know, a lot of them were from overseas, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah. And there would be two possibilities. They would either explain it yeah. by saying, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah, he's on loan to the cops from Russia. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a totally different accent, but fine. <laughs> he's Austrian. <laughs> he's but not right, the same yeah. thing, but Americans don't know the difference. Or they will just pretend he's just... Just a guy. Just like yeah. some guy from, from Iowa, and he just happened to turn out with that accent. Oh, yeah, this is Jack... Stevenson. He had names like like uh, Howard Jones and yeah. John uh, Matrix. John Matrix was one of them. Yeah, like just 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 not in mm. any way suggesting that he the, had it came from any culture. He was just I, generic I th- dude. I think, he's, I think he's played like expressly played an Austrian character mm-hmm. in one movie, and that was the movie Junior. Uh, one exception, or, or yeah, Last Action Hero played Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, fair. Yeah, so. Kind of got, kind of, kind of. I mean, play, that's a gimme, but yeah. he rarely plays Austrian characters. I think he, didn't he play point. an Italian American in um, what was that fuck Raw Deal? Oh, you know what? I haven't seen Raw Deal. Raw Deal's terrible. Yeah. He plays a cop who like goes undercover in like the mafia, uh-huh. and it, it it clearly looks like it was like this was supposed to be like a Charles Bronson movie or something, and mm. they just got Schwarzenegger, and it's totally the wrong fit. Yeah. Everything about it feels <laughs> wrong. It's totally off. So I like, but Gerard Butler's just one of those guys where it's just like, we just want him to be Gerard Butler. Just, we don't yeah. care. It doesn't He's, fucking matter. I, I kind of wish, when it came to these action heroes, they're playing themselves every time. Yeah. And, That's, uh, they're playing and, a vibe. If, if you look up the author, Vern, he wrote a book called... Uh, Seagology. So yeah, Seagal, which is all about the films of Steven Seagal. And yeah. uh, he posited in that book that the, the notion of uh, action star as auteur, mm. that it doesn't really matter who's directing it, you're going the presence of the action hero is mm. going to sort of shape the film around them. And that's not true for everybody, but it was definitely true for people true, like true. Steven Seagal when, yeah, when or talking, Schwarzenegger to an extent. When you're talking about yeah. like badass cinema, that's kind yeah. of how how it's built up. Uh, yeah. We're not going to see a Choi Hark film necessarily. We're going to go see Van Damme or Jackie Chan or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. he's uh, directing. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of wish Gerard Butler were allowed to play characters named Gerard Butler. I like, that when I was a kid. Yeah, like they, like, they should just play themselves and yeah. have that be like, almost like El Santo, like it's part of their myth. Yeah, that's how I felt uh, when I was a kid about comedy actors who have played the same character over and over again. Yeah. Like, when I was a kid, John Candy was in everything. Yeah. You know, he was doing The Great Outdoors, he was in Summer Rental, he was in... Uncle Buck. Uncle, Uncle yeah. Buck. And he was always a John Candy type, and I was just like, 
Why don't we just call? I know he's John Candy. <laughs> he's not pretending to be someone who isn't John Candy. He's, he's, Let him be John Candy. He's, he's an actor. He plays a lot of was. different parts. I understand when I was a kid. That's what <laughs> oh, I thought. Okay. I was like, because I was so hyper aware of his celebrity. Oh, that, okay. and I still do this. And if you listen to like when we do these uh, reviews, a lot of the time I'll talk about a character and I'll just use the actor's name because yeah. to me, for that universe. That's just what Gerard <laughs> Butler does in that universe. That's so, where Gerard uh, Butler ended up in the plane multiverse. Uh, this is a movie that stars Gerard Butler. It came out in January, and it's called Plane. You can't, you have the movie in your head. It's right on the ground. It's completely utilitarian. It, it the action sequences are violent enough. Yeah. The the setup is good enough. The the supporting characters do their job. Yeah. Uh, Daniela Pineda, uh, who's been in a oh, couple yeah. movies recently, she plays a, a brave stewardess in this okay. one. Um, the thing I don't get about it, and, and maybe you can tell me this, because mm-hmm. the title Plane, I mean, there's a lot of movies you could call, Airplane could have been called Plane, Airport could mm-hmm. have been called Plane, Con Air could have yeah. been called Plane. It's a movie on a plane, fine. Um, it doesn't seem like they're on the plane for most of it. Uh, I mean, the plane is a big part of it, and you know, trying to fix the plane and getting the plane up and running, and the, okay. it comes comes into play uh, during the 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 climax of the movie. Okay, so but they got to go back to the plane. Yeah, they're and take, lift taking off, off the plane again. and then they go back to the. Okay, plane. well that's that makes a little bit more sense, but it sounded like they just crash landed, and I was like, maybe you should call it island. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's already a movie called the island. I know, but like you know, plane crash, plane crash. Yeah, that's more dramatic. I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah, plane yeah. is a laughable title. Is there is there compared to some of the other generic Gerard Butler action thrillers? Uh, uh, how I, does it compare? Is it better than say uh, London Has Fallen? Uh, those those I think those has fallen movies are are pretty rotten. Okay, uh, London Has Fallen especially. Yeah, well, no, Angel Has Fallen is just a- Angel Has Fallen is completely forgettable. Just complete um, junk. Yeah, London bit- Has Fallen is, is irresponsible, but at least you can watch it. Yeah, I, I did appreciate that at the end he's just like shirtless firing machine guns into the air, like waving an American flag, just going, ah! <laughs> Yay, go America, take down London. Wait, what? <laughs> what are we rooting for? I forgot. Uh, no, it's, 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 I guess a hair above a lot of the junk we usually see Gerard mm-hmm. Butler in in January. Like so, like, so like if, you're, if, you're, if you like Gerard Butler movies, this might be okay for you. Yeah. yeah okay. There's, there's, they actually... It, it does what it says, we do say this a lot, but it does what it says on the tin. It just sort yeah. of g- gives you the very baseline, mm-hmm. so it actually is a functional film. Yeah. Not a great movie, yeah. but it functions. Well, uh, that's that's how I feel about that segue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I feel about the new House Party. Okay. Uh, which is also a very plain title. Guess what? It's about a house party. Um, and uh, there were... Th- Five, four. There were five house party. Five movies. house party movies. There was uh, the original house party came out in 1990. It was directed by Reginald Hudlin, uh, who had a pretty big career. Um, he, I think, the last thing he did uh, was what was that uh, Chadwick Boseman biopic he did? Um, Get on up. No, 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 no. He, he, that wasn't him. No, he did. Um, oh my God, it's driving four, me nuts. Forty two. <laughs> no, Marshall. Marshall. Okay. He did Marshall. That's what he did. Chadwick Boseman's been in a bunch of biopics. No, no yeah, that's right. That did not narrow that shit down. No, he did Marshall. Uh, he's done some documentaries lately. He did that Sidney Poitier documentary. All right. uh, but yeah, his first movie was this uh, indie uh, uh, movie. It's mostly really, really good. It stars Kid and Play, who were a big deal uh, in, yeah. the, in the hip-hop scene in the early 90s. 
Uh, and yeah, they're teenagers and they have a house party. That's it. The one of them can't get to the house party. Has to sneak out of the house. Dad's chasing after him. Uh, they have will they or won't they relationship stuff. There's a couple of recurring gags. It's mostly like really energetic and sweet, and like everyone's kind of intelligent and speaks um, very candidly but honestly about things like sex and romance. And I, I rewatched it because I hadn't seen it in a while mm-hmm. uh, before I saw this new one. And I was like, wow, this movie holds up great. Like, this is a really great movie. And then I got to the end and it just, like, collapsed into a puddle of homophobic humor. Uh, uh, like, there's a rap song about not wanting no. to be... It's so gross. Like, right at the end. Is, is it's it like, like, that, you, it's like that song in Pop Stars? Like, I, I support not gay. I'm not gay. No, 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 because that, that was self-aware. That yeah. was, like, the joke was that the character mm. was homophobic, but, but the movie was not. Yeah. Uh, in this one, uh, the climax of the original House Party, uh, the character of Kid, uh, who was the member of Kid and Play with the really tall uh, mm. hairstyle, um, he is thrown in jail, and the whole plot is his friends have to f- bail him out of prison without their parents knowing before the things you hear about in prison can happen, and it turns into a series of bad jokes. Oh, jeez. Like, really ugly, uncomfortable, like, just, just shitty humor. And it's such a shame because before that it was really good. And so it's kind of hard to recommend because mm. up until then it's great. And then it's just like, oh, but it's, it leaves such a sour taste in your mouth. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, House Party 2 was okay. It's kind of just the same one again, but it's a college. Um, House Party 3 is completely forgettable. Just like House Party 4 and 5, which went straight to video. Uh, <laughs> they're just completely just just generic comedy pap. Uh, and, uh, which brings us quite nicely to the new house party. Uh, the new house party, uh, is from a director named Calmatic. Uh, they do a lot of music videos and, um, uh, and commercials. This is their feature film debut. I think they're also scheduled to remake White Men Can't Jump. Okay. Um, this one stars Jacob Lattimore and Tosin Cole, uh, as uh, two guys who are down on their luck. Jacob Lattimore is a single dad. He's got a very young daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, shares custody with his wife. But just like Jamie Foxx in um, that vampire movie last year, he, oh, uh, if, he if he can't pay for expensive... Day shift. Day shift. If he can't pay for expensive daycare, he's gonna, like, kids are going to move away or something like that. Okay. So he's on the hook for a lot of money real fast. Uh, and uh, Tosin Cole is a bit more of a shiftless layabout type, but they're both really passionate about uh, being party promoters. Like, that's what they want to do. Oh, okay. And they think they're really, really good at it. They're just not really making money at it. Uh, so their day job is cleaning houses for people who are a lot richer than they are. Uh, while they're I, I clean- see where this is going. While they're cleaning a house, <laughs> uh-huh. they get the call uh, from Jacob Lattimore's girlfriend, mm-hmm. and she's saying, like, she works there too. She's like, hey, they have, like, a lot of security cam footage of you guys just getting high and not working. Uh-oh. You're fired. They're going to tell you on Monday, and they just want you to, like, finish cleaning this house, but I wanted to give you a heads up so you can plan accordingly. Right. And they're like, oh, okay, great. And at that point, they realize that the house that they're in is LeBron James's house. <laughs> So they decide we're going to hold, and since LeBron James is out of town, they have they have like mm. access to like his like day planner and stuff. Okay, you know, they're going to hold a house party at LeBron James's house. Here, here's how that how this really works in real life. Uh-huh. LeBron James has people. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, has, he has he has staff, staff who's like yeah. signed NDAs and stuff. Yeah, they, they're not just hiring some guys, telling them clean this house, and we're not going to tell and, you. Lives and here. even if they did, he would still have staff at his giant mansion. Yeah. He would have gardeners. He would have other people just mm. taking care of his stuff. 
yeah. security, someone. Because he's, he's a, one of the biggest celebrities in the world. But you know what? If if they have all that, we don't have a movie. And I perfectly, I'm perfectly willing to accept as the premise for the movie. I, there's a uh, there's a there's a rule in screenwriting I've heard. Um, audiences are very willing to accept a coincidence at the start of a movie, uh, not at the end. That's fair. You can't wrap it up with a coincidence, but a lot of movies begin with a coincidence. Oh, what are the odds? I sat on a plane next to a uh, next to a professional hitman, and we and we struck up a conversation. A, Strangers on a train opens with a huge coincidence. A lot of movies mm-hmm. open with a coincidence. So I'm willing to forgive in order to get the setup going, especially for a broad comedy. I'm giving you a little leeway. So that's not my problem with the movie at all. Okay. And the idea of holding a secret house party at a famous person's house, and knowing that even though you want to throw a huge house party, you're going to charge people at the door, you're going to make a lot of money, you're going to invite celebrities from LeBron James's like contact Philo list. Facts, yeah. Exactly. Um, they, so, <laughs> I just dated myself by using really the term Philofax. Uh, Look up what it means. I'm not going to explain what a Philofax <laughs> is right here. Uh, but uh, regardless, that, that's not a bad idea. Mm. You know, you got uh, people like running around trying to problem solve. Every time a, every time something bad happens, it's it, it, ten fi- times fine, worse because you might get caught. Fine comedy premise. Yeah, uh, it's fine. Peter Sellers and Abbott and Costello, even Laurel and Hardy, got plenty of mileage out of this. Yeah, that, like this again. It's a broad comedic setup. You got to keep mm-hmm. a secret while trying to do something outlandish. They throw a house party. People show up to the house party. Some of the people at the house party are famous. You know who's really funny in this movie? Uh, Kid Cudi, and playing himself. Playing himself. All right. He shows up. The 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 uh, uh, the Tosin Cole's character. Uh, Sees him like in in the parlor, mm. just hanging out by himself. Like, hey, Kid Cudi, you're you're so brilliant. I love all your work. And Kid Cudi's just like, yeah, I don't usually go to these kinds of party things, but I had a poem I wrote for LeBron James, and I thought I'd give it to him. Here. Is he coming soon? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, that's okay. Can I read it? No, only LeBron James can read my poem. <laughs> like weirdly, just like bizarre character. Um, I love this character uh, caricature of Kid Cudi. It, mm. it plays quite nicely off of the Bill and Ted's uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Yeah, because yeah. he, he was in that movie as well, and he played much more of like a straight laced normal version of himself. He's a weirdo in this movie, <laughs> and honestly, he's the best part of the movie. Like right. because there's a part in the movie about eh, two thirds of the way through where a problem has arisen that is nearly impossible to solve. Mm. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to tell you how it happens. What I will say is that the one person who comes in and says, I can help you do the impossible thing is Kid Cudi. And then they have to go on like a side quest, like outside the party Mm. to accomplish a goal for about 10 minutes. The new house party is genuinely hilarious. Like just absolutely. It gets bizarre, cartoonish, satirical in a way that the rest of the movie is not violent like weirdly (laughs) like weirdly violent um plotting that goes completely out the wall like it's for 10 glorious minutes or so you see how funny this movie could have been Uh the problem is that the rest of the movie is just sort of fine Uh like there's a lot of like ideas for jokes but they don't land You're, you're vaguely amused but you're not actually enjoying yourself very much you see I mean, where be, they're going, being, but you're not, you're not actually laughing. Being amused, sometimes, you know, comedies are a little bit low-key. Even yeah. broad uh, comedies like this, they can be a little bit low-key, where you're sort of like, they're more affable than they're funny. And, and that's, that, can that's, that can be a fine way to make a comedy. That, that can be fine, but when you're smoking out a koala 
Okay, like, that needs to be, like, wild. Yeah, strange, like, you're, you're sure. literally, there's, like, a koala in the movie that gets high. You're going for broader humor than that, and it's 90% of the jokes don't land. Except for this one 10-minute chunk where you just see, like, the people who made this have a sense of humor, and they were willing to go weird, and I don't know what happened. For me, the thing that I, I feel like is very telling about the film is that what what is at the heart of a story about a bunch of people with no money throwing a secret house party at the house of a rich and famous person? It's a story about class. It's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, um... And it's kind of a, a wish fulfillment fantasy sure. about class. It's about people who don't have money uh, pretending, yeah. at least for a little bit, that they do, that yeah. they can take advantage of rich person stuff. And indeed, and you're in you, rich people are coming to the house, and they're going to get kind of like, you know, they kind of get taken down a little bit, you know, like oh, they're funnier than they they're, they're just like us or whatever like that. But there's this weird quality to the new house party that suggests that the filmmakers or the storytellers or maybe the producer LeBron James. Really didn't want to take the piss out of LeBron James, and, uh, and as a result, there's like a there's like is a Le, is LeBron James in the movie. Yes, he is. He oh. does. He does show up. There, he shows up early on uh, because when they enter in LeBron James's like personal trophy room. Okay. Uh, there's a hologram of LeBron James who says like self-actualizing statements to LeBron James, All like right. LeBron James, like yeah, you made a good jo- you made a good choice trading teams back in 2015 or whatever it was. Uh, you were the best part of Trainwreck. <laughs> the, the, the film critic for the New York Post agreed, like that kind of thing. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but what it boils down to it is they really do treat LeBron James like he's better than most people, and indeed that's true for pretty much. All the celebrities, hmm. even the ones who might be up to something like vaguely sinister. So this There's is, this general air of, of it's a film about class, but it doesn't actually criticize class. Yeah, and I guess it doesn't have to, but it feels like such a wasted opportunity. Hmm. I remember thinking, uh, uh, you know, about like all the the comedies in the 1930s, back in the height of the Great Depression, hmm. where a lot of comedies were about rich people. A lot of them oh, yeah, were about like rich a, people the, interacting with poor people. But you know, the rich all, people all were, of the Astaire Rogers films were yeah, about that, pretty much. But the majority of the time, the rich, or at least some of the rich, were, if not wicked, at least doofuses. They were kind of buffoons. Yeah, yeah, we were just like basically saying, the rich, let's bring them down a little bit. Like, it's times are hard, and we're still in hard times. And so this kind of like weird celebration of celebrity comes across as just kind of meek. Hmm. It just it, The whole same thing just feels really toothless in a way that's frustrating because they walk right up. To putting a whoopee cushion cushion under LeBron James, uh-huh. and then they're like, "No, we can't do that to LeBron James. Uh, here's some money, LeBron. Like, uh, here's, like here's, here's, here's 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 something nice. Here's a gift for LeBron like, James." And I'm like, "No, he's like the most famous athlete in the world right now. He should be able to he's, he's, take a, take it on the chin a little yeah, bit. You know, he, he sleeps on a bed made out of money. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. No, it's it's he, he can afford being taken down a little. I know. I just it just feels like they really had to pull almost all their punches. Again, except for this one funny sequence. I guarantee you, I can pretty much guarantee you that when this movie comes out on on home video, whether it's streaming or DVD or whatever, um, that, like, five, ten minute chunk, clips of that are going to show up online. Uh People are going to say, oh, did we miss a really funny movie? Like, should we all go see House Party? Like, no, that's just the good part. You saw the highlights. (laughs) yeah. Yeah, so anyway, um... It's not the worst house party movie because that bar is quite low, uh, but it's also not the best, even with the problematic elements of the first one. It's just a more interesting film. Uh, so yeah, this is kind of a, kind of a bummer, but it's it's not you know 
It's not hard to watch. It's just not very interesting to watch. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, just kind of. It's kind of plain. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's plain. All right, why don't we talk about a movie we both saw? Uh, I, I can say that yeah. the other movies I've seen this week, none of the rest of them are plain. Uh, uh, in fact, a lot of them are really quite interesting. Uh, there's one other movie I saw this week that was kind of plain, and right. it's, a, it's a bit of a bummer. Uh, but I guess we'll get to that in a little bit, unless you want to just get it out of the way now. No, let's uh, let's go to a more interesting one. Let's go to a more interesting one. Let's talk about, like, we, we talked about some just kind of generic mm. Hollywood stuff. <laughs> let's talk about the exact opposite of that. All right. And let's talk about a really fascinating new horror movie called Skin and Rink. Oh, God, Skin and Rink. Um, Skin and Rink is a, a low-budget Canadian... Uh, you could call it an experimental film, I suppose. Yeah, I, I wouldn't um, say... I would say qualifies. Uh, because there is... Not like there's a progression of events, but there's not much in way of like plot or setup. No, it's uh, more about it's, it's more about being in the middle of a moment than it is about yeah, plot. But if you pay uh, attention, there's there's a bit of plot, but not much. Uh, the filmmaker, his name is uh, Bell. Um, uh, Russell, Russell Bell. I forgot his first name. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Uh, he filmed this in his child. Kyle Edward Ball. Kyle Edward Ball. Excuse me, not Bell. Uh, yeah. Kyle Edward Ball uh, shot this in his own childhood home in mm. uh, Edmonton, and. Uh, he filmed it with uh, vintage cameras on vintage film stock, mm. and uh, the the premise is there's two children in this house. Mm. Uh, one of them is four, and one of them is six, and mm. it's three a.m. Everything is dark in the house, and they're awake, and they are wandering through the hallways of their darkened home, and. Things are a little off. The only light they get is the television. Yeah. And the television is playing these... uh, Really old... Old, like, public domain cartoons. Yeah. And it's meant to sort of be entertainment, but more than anything, it's like it's not breaking through to the kids. It's just coloring the atmosphere they're wandering through. And uh, in... They, they notice that the doors and the windows in the house have vanished. Yeah. And also, they're father is gone yeah and then and and i don't want to go into too much detail because there's only so much plot in the movie yeah there's something upstairs there's something there and uh the kids are too afraid to speak or i guess they're not afraid it's just dark so they're only speaking like whispers yeah and occasionally they'll say something out loud and it almost feels like like the the darkness around them just absorbs the noise. Yeah. So it feels like they're very uh, isolated and yeah. There's it's, it's like it's like yeah. when you're up late at night and you're watching TV when you're a little kid and you're not supposed to. Yeah. So you keep the you keep the TV on like as low as you possibly can mm. and you're watching like an old cathode ray tube so it's very flickery. Yeah. And yeah and you're just sitting there right in front of the TV and as long as you're right in front of the TV everything's fine but around you is a if, void. If you, yeah. If you look or look behind yeah. you you see that void and this yeah. this is a movie that. That kind of just pushes through that void because it was shot on the, this uh, grainy old film. Uh, it's digital. It's, it's digital actually. Oh, it, but is it, digital. Looks, it looks like grainy old film. Okay, but it, yeah, they, it's they, they actually, digital, they yeah. actually like added uh, the sort of those fake pops and scratches, so it looks yeah. a little vintage. 
But uh, yeah, the, your eye as an audience member, you're constantly peering into the darkness for these really, really long sustained shots. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we don't ever see the children's faces. There's yeah. no dialogue establishing who they are. We know their names. Uh-huh. Uh, and we know that there's a mom and a dad in this house. Yeah, there's early on, there's a phone call that we overhear hmm. between the dad and someone where he yeah. talks about how one of the kids fell down the stairs and hurt themselves. Hmm. But that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's uh, the the phone plays in a pretty horrifying scene later on in the movie. Uh, if this is tapping into something that I think is a little like if if you grew up in a, a certain kind of suburban home, mm. this is probably a pretty common experience. This kind of having a nightmare about your house, yeah, where it's altered in some way. I, I think this is true and for the, anyone. Even as an adult, I've had mm. this, where like I will be at, at the house I grew up in. Yeah. But it's not my house. But it is my house. Yeah. Like, yeah. in my head, I'm making all the associations, but visibly around me, it's not. You're like, it, it's your home, but, like, the hallway bends the wrong way. Yeah. Or, or, or it's or, too or big. Now there's a or, second story that you didn't have before. Yeah, exactly. Or the lighting would never look like this. Yeah. Or something. Or the, the room is at, like, all the furniture is missing. That kind yeah. of stuff. And, uh... Uh, Kyle Edward Ball uh, previously was a YouTuber. He ran a, a website called um, Bite-sized, uh, Nightmares. Bite-Sized Nightmares. And he, uh, viewers would write in and describe nightmares they've had, mm-hmm. and he would film them. He would like, re- recreate them as little shorts on film. And yeah. So he's clearly working within the nightmare milieu. And Skinnamarink make made me remember the nightmares I had when I was four. Yeah. And I had a lot of nightmares when I was a little kid. I have a lot of nightmares now. I actually was uh, really kind of infected for a while with like this, this, this nightmare. Mm -hmm. I I would just wake up every night and I would scream and I would vomit just because I was so afraid. Uh, And this is a movie that sort of takes a melon baller deep into like my brain pan and scoops that stuff out again. I I think it understands that nightmare. So many movies, even I think even the better movies about nightmares like Mm. Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, um, think of nightmares as just some kind of fantastical dreamscape you wander around in when they don't always capture is the nebulous sense of space and time is the nebulous Mm. sense of sound and vision Um, the idea that you understand where you are, but you but you do not recognize it. That's really hard to capture in cinema. And by having it from the perspective and the camera's almost always like really low to the ground, having it from the perspective of little, little kids and giving us that, that just that taste of what it was like to be that size. Yeah. Um, I think creates a sort of universality to it where, we all know what it was like to be small and feel helpless yeah. in the dark. Whether we were afraid of the dark or just had a bad dream and woke up in our bed in the middle of the night. Um, we, know, we know how creepy and lonely that is. Yeah, yeah. And so much of this movie is just atmosphere. And it's just mm. shots of the empty house, shots of the empty yeah, house, well, shots of the TV. A and, lot, and a lot of it is, it, they're static shots. The camera doesn't move a lot. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it is from a four-year-old's perspective. Yeah. So there's a lot of low angles looking up at ceilings. And yeah. uh, throughout, there's this pervasive, like, analog hiss, like white noise underneath mm-hmm. all of it. Um, there's a scene in the movie where that hiss gets slowly louder. Uh, and... Uh, yeah. And I became so afraid in that moment watching this movie that I actually said out loud in full voice, stop it. <laughs> I, was really, 
It's like it was getting yeah. louder and louder. It's like, and I just said, stop. That was the moment for me. The mm. moment was uh, there's a scene. I'm not going to tell you anything more about the, than this. Mm. I said, there's something upstairs. Yeah. There will be a point in the film where one of the children ventures upstairs. Mm-hmm. Holy <laughs> shit. Holy fucking shit, that scene. And I don't want to oversell because I think some people, when you talk about how scary something is, people assume it's kind of viscerally scary. It's yeah. going to have gore or jump, it's going to have scares, a lot of jump yeah. scares. There's like one or two jump scary moments. It's kind of to, to break the, the pattern, I yeah. think. And I think one of them might have even been maybe a, a misstep maybe i think it might have been a little too much but um this is not that this is about dread this well, is about creating a sense of childlike yeah. dread and but as an adult you watch it and you're trying to piece together what little events are happening into some kind of some kind of logic mm-hmm. and Every attempt I had to transform what happens in this movie into something even vaguely logical mm. is still fucking terrifying. Yeah. Because yeah. At, at most we're looking at some kind of like supernatural boogeyman thing, but on a level well, I'm not comfortable it, with. It, <laughs> like, it, it it's happens, really freaky. It happens so... Na- I, I hesitate. Oh, I mean, it is supernatural, but yeah. it, it's one of those supernatural things where... Or it's just um, a whole a dream, but I suppose yeah, that, one can make that argument, but yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's a nightmare, but, you know, it, it's yeah. it's unadulterated fear. It's like uncut yeah. fright. And um, it, when you say there's like a supernatural element in, in a movie, uh, we've seen so many supernatural movies that mm-hmm. there's rules. Yeah. That there's rules people follow, will, will review a supernatural film that has all kinds of rules and structure in it. Yeah. And... Uh, when you know the rules, it's actually a lot less scary all of a sudden. It's a little because, empowering because you have yeah. a sense that you, you know what you can and cannot expect. Yeah. Uh, and here and the, you, you don't. And even once you kind of like try to put to get it together, mm. you still don't know the rules. Yeah. You still yeah. don't know. You, you know what's happening and you know what. what. There's a title card in this movie mm. that scared the shit out of me. Well, like just, some, just, of, just some of the dialogue is not audible, and mm. some of it is, and it's alternate, alternately subtitled. Yes, occasionally it's subtitled, uh, and some of the subtitles are just the fucking freakiest fucking things. Yeah, yeah. Including one that in any other situation would be completely banal. Mm. But in the context of this, freaked me the fuck out. Yeah. This is a legitimately frightening movie. However, yeah. and I do think it's important to warn people... Uh. Because it is not conventional in its storytelling style at all, mm. the level of pacing that I think most people are used to, for some people, this might require more concentration yeah, than you're uh, used to, and you might get a little uncomfortable uh, with the, the slow pace. It, it's something it you, should, you should watch... Uh, you should and should not watch this in the dark at home alone at night. Yeah, uh, I think that's the best. Because you know, I, it, I it'll demand your, th- demand your attention, but at the same time, it'll scare the yeah. fuck out of you. It's playing uh, in theaters right now, and in not insignificant number. It's playing in, in hundreds of theaters across the country. Right. So it is very possible that you can go yeah. see this in a theater. I envy people seeing this theater. I bet this is amazing in a theater. Yeah, Just and, the, and having it, was, it envelop uh, you would probably be fucking terrifying. But it, I agree. At home, mm-hmm. middle of the night... Especially on like an old cathode ray TV. Oh, wouldn't that be frightening? Oh my god, this uh, would fucking kill me. Uh, if I saw this as a kid, oh yeah, my god, I, this is the. This, and I'm not using hyperbole here. Um, it's one of the scariest movies I've seen in years. Yeah. Uh, it. I. I love horror movies. Mm-hmm. I, I'm often unnerved by horror movies. I appreciate yeah. uh, horror movies that co- sort of 
deconstruct and get behind what actually makes us afraid. Yeah. This one just makes us afraid. It, it's not <laughs> intellectual. It's just sort of getting deep into our minds. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I can't oversell it enough, but at the same time, this is not the kind of movie that elicits sort of like a mass haunted house sort of good time at the movies kind of No, no, no. That's not what this Uh, is. This is the opposite of those It movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, The It movies are are carnivals. There's just a lot going on. There's a fucking clown in them. Yeah, Yeah. there's clowns dancing around and there's, you know, monsters and we're going to have these like big set pieces and it's... It, it's paced like an action movie, yeah. uh, and some of those scenes are scary. A lot of people like those, but I feel like uh, those kinds of movies are a lot more fun in a big crowd and everybody's being a little bit rowdy and a little bit noisy, yeah. uh, and everybody can kind of scream in unison. Yeah, Skinnamarink is very slow moving. Yeah, uh, it's almost abstract. Uh, we don't see the characters' faces. We barely hear what they're saying, and uh, and yeah, there's not any kind of logical explanation as to what's going on No, here. no. The, the movie I was thinking of in terms of, like, what was the last movie that actually scared me uh-huh. was actually Smile. I thought Smile oh, yeah. was a really, really great scary film, but I it was... Like, more, I Smile, but... Smile's yeah. great, and I think Smile's genuinely frightening, but it's frightening in much more of a jump scare way. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of jump moments in this where you're gonna be freaked out, but mm. it, that's not the movie. This is... This movie is enveloping you in darkness. Yeah. Uh... And I just, it, I think this is one of the most important things a critic can do is to prepare people for the movie they're going to see. Whether you like the movie or not, you should know what you're getting into so you can judge the movie based on its own merits. So I'll say this right now. Skinnamarink is one of the most frightening movies I've seen in a very, very long yeah. time. But it is very different from the vast majority of horror movies that most people watch. Mm. And you should be ready to slow down. Yeah. And get on the movie's wavelength. Don't impose your own uh, uh, values or ideas of how a horror movie is supposed to be paced mm-hmm. on Skinnamarink because it's not going to help you. Yeah. And it's going to hurt the movie because you're going to expect it to be something that it's not. At, you might not like it, but at the very least, you have to try to meet it on its own terms because this movie is doing something very, very, very different. Yeah. But it is completely frightening. <laughs> it is genuinely terrifying. Yeah. There's actually this weird thing I was thinking about because you were talking about like you want you want to, you want to watch this movie like really late at night, like put it on at like one a.m. on a VHS cassette, yeah, and just let it envelop you while all the lights are off, and it'll just be the most frightening thing you've ever seen in your life. But I was thinking about it, I'm like I bet this is the kind of movie where if it is so slow. That you nod off for a couple of minutes and you come back, <laughs> oh, that would probably make it scarier. Yeah, yeah. That would probably that would it's such it would be like you wake up from a dream and you're still in Skinnamarink. Oh, oh, Jesus fucking Christ! Um, on that note, let's talk about the exact polar opposite horror movie because <laughs> there's so another horror movie that opened this weekend that is everything Skinnamarink is not. Oh no! And I kind of love it. I I I'll say this: it has a good deal of temerity. <laughs> By w- put that 
on the poster. By, by it which, has a good deal of temerity, by, says Whitney Seibold. By which I mean this film is fucking lunacy. Uh, <laughs> this is called The Devil we're, Conspiracy. We're talking about The Devil Conspiracy. Oh um, my god, people are not talking about this enough. No, because this, this movie's bonkers. Uh, so The Devil Conspiracy... Is is a Satan movie? Yeah, as you can imagine, it's January. We gotta get yeah. a, a Satan movie, uh, and Satan's in it, <laughs> and Satan's a super villain. Yeah, he is. Satan. Uh, so Satan was cast from heaven by Archangel Michael. Yeah, like uh, you do. In, in a prologue, we see Archangel Michael and Satan fighting yeah. in heaven in a big CGI mess of action. It's actually kind of cool because, like, we get that like two thousand and one shot of like earth and the sun yeah. and then you see we see a red comet hurtling out of this big iris opening in the heavens so yeah. heaven's another dimension yeah it's actually it's actually and, kind of uh, ambitious and cool looking for a minute and then lucifer and he's like this big monstrous angel type being yeah, they've like bone yeah uh halos and crash and lands wings, onto yeah. like a lava planet it's clearly hell mm-hmm. and then shortly after that uh the archangel michael well, he, he, he crash lands on earth yeah and burrows into its core. Yeah, it's, it's pretty so, yeah. epic. And then he, but he lands basically in hell. And Archangel Michael like does like a perfect superhero landing like after him. Uh, and I, this is the first like there's a bit of like a voiceover like at the dawn of time, a race of druids. Nobody knows who they were. <laughs> like there's a bit of a prologue, but the first line of dialogue in the movie, Lucifer is crash landed in hell. Archangel Michael has crash landed next to him, and Lucifer looks at Michael and goes. Shit. Shit. And then Michael grabs Lucifer by the leg and he's like dragging him to a rock that he can chain him to. And Lucifer yells, he's like, is, is this really is, necessary? Is this really necessary? <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, I love this and, so but, fucking much already. But it, it, this clearly isn't like sold for as sort of like lightweight comedy. Because no. you can see something like that in a Marvel movie. Like yeah. these monsters saying flip things. Right. Uh, no, this is clearly like with its really steely design and dark photography. Yeah. It's clearly trying to be like an action epic. Yeah. And uh, they chain, uh, Archangel Michael chains Lucifer to a rock. Yeah. You're, you're stuck in hell now. Yeah. Cut to thousands yeah. of years later, present day, yeah. uh, there's an art historian, and we know this because when they <laughs> run into someone on the street, they say, hey, how's my art historian? How, how's the art historian gig going? <laughs> and uh, yeah. There's uh, a bit at the beginning where she tells a guy, she, she's in like Rome. Studying, you know, Catholic art, and your whole thing is like, yeah, but I don't believe in any of it. I think this is all just a metaphor. Yeah, and the guy's just like, yeah, but that'd make a that'd make a really boring movie, wouldn't it? Yeah, your your, <laughs> your theory would make a boring movie is the line of dialogue. Yeah, which is and, uh, which yeah. is the ethos of the whole film. <laughs> if we took religion seriously, we wouldn't have a film, so we're not going to. Yeah. So uh, she has a, a friend, uh, a local priest, and they're going to go see the Turing Shroud of Turin, yes. which is uh, said to be the shroud that Jesus Christ body was wrapped in yeah. when he died all those years ago uh, before he rose up ah. and uh, and they they say like in the museum uh, like they're showing it like this almost never shows to the public mm. this is very rare this is the most famous object in the world and I'm like I'm not sure that's true but regardless so certainly the, one of the more uh, it, one of, the most, one of the more famous bits of fam- like religious re- re- paraphernalia, fam- famous religious artifact. Uh, yeah, I'll give you that. And, but yeah, they the, also uh, say it's it's Jesus's DNA, and I'm like, I'm not a, sure that's on record. I, I'm, I, it's been debunked, but the idea is that there's this facial imprint on mm. the shroud, and that's yeah. supposed to be what Christ's face looked. It like. looks kind of Jesusy that face. Well, it looks like the 1950s paintings of Jesus. Exactly. Is what it looks that's like. how it looks kind of Jesusy. Uh, yeah. uh, 
We don't know what Jesus looks like. No, do we don't. Yeah, um, no. There's, there's no paintings and, or renderings there, of there Christ just happened from to be an time. image on this uh, old piece of cloth yeah. that looks a little like we assume Jesus looked like yeah, if you're like, white. Uh, yeah, <laughs> basically, Cause, cause Jesus was a white man from Oxford. Um, have you seen the Have you seen the trailer for the new History of the World Part Two? Oh, I have. Yeah, yeah there's like, a bit where they're like they're did you, talking. Did you, you want to make Jesus white? Don't put words in my mouth. And yeah, the Pope is like deciding Jesus is going to be white from now on. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, so they're going to see the Shroud of Turin, uh, but sure enough, uh, Satan worshippers come in. And well, she, she, for some reason, uh, let me look up the character and actress's name. Okay. Is, uh, uh, Weirdly enough, the movie isn't even on Wikipedia. No, it's not. <laughs> That's so fucking weird. Uh, the you think they would have at uh, least put it on there. The character is named Laura. She's played by an actress named Alice Or Ewing, and uh, her friend is Father Marconi. He's played by a guy named Joe Doyle. Mm-hmm. For some reason, she's in uh, the shroud room in the middle of the night by herself. Like, yeah, she's allowed to go in there. He 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 is like he has an inn. I guess he works at the Vatican or something like that, and they're friends. So he takes her to see not the shroud. But this like rare statue of the Archangel Michael, yeah, uh, that they've brought in to sort of like protect the shroud of, in a seemingly a symbolic way. Uh, and he's like, okay, and yeah, and people don't usually get to see this. I thought you'd want it. And she's like, she sketches it mm-hmm. for like eight hours. Yeah, and so I look she, at the sketch she's doing. And I'm like, that should not have taken you away. Uh, no, no, no. Like she's, she's not doing an oil painting. No, she's it's, sketching it's, it. It's, a, but, it's uh, an okay sketch. But wouldn't you know it? Satan worshippers break in and they're, they're, they they want to break. The, the box that the Shroud of Turin is in. Take yeah. the Shroud of Turin. Yeah. And in so doing, they uh, uh, kidnap Laura uh-huh. and they kill Father Marconi. Yes, but Father Marconi dies calling for the Archangel Michael to take over his body and save the Shroud of Turin, mm. which happens... Which leads to more amazing stuff. Like, there's a bit where the Archangel so the, Michael, yeah. like, shows up to some priests and they're just like, where was the guy who was supposed to be protecting the Shroud of Turin? Oh, he had these, like, this horrible mental breakdown and he kept, like, seeing nightmares about the end of the world and, like, Satan stealing stuff. And the guy's just like, have you even read the Bible? <laughs> and there's a long pause with these guys in Archbishop's outfits who are like, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Another great moment with the with Michael is he, he like, steals a car. And like, yeah, okay, Archangel Michael is yeah. now occupying the body uh-huh. of this priest. Yeah, and he, he steals the and guy's the- car, and he's driving in the car, and we hear the, the opening strains of uh, The Devil Inside by NXX. Yeah. Awesome song. NXS, one of the great 80s bands. You'll not talk about it. Listen to the greatest hits album by NXS, and you'll realize you know all of those songs, and you probably didn't realize NXS did every single one of them. Or just by kick. I, or just by kick, yeah. whatever. My point is, a kick, somewhat kick. underappreciated band. I feel like people don't talk kick, about NXS enough. Kick is a fucking great record. Yes, it fucking is. We don't talk about NXS enough. It rules. Uh, the band rules. Uh, so they play The Devil Inside. Great fucking song. And and the Archangel Michael is actually kind of jamming out to it. And then it cuts to the chorus and he realizes devil it's about inside. the devil. devil and he's inside. like, oh no. And he changes the radio station. And then it's playing Send Me an Angel by Real Life. And he nods like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And at that point, it's, 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 again, this is not a comedy film. It's, it's not a comedy totally film, straight. But at this point, you do have to realize that the filmmakers are only taking this so seriously, and they do want you to be entertained. They're yeah, not trying to a, freak you out. They're not trying to change your views. They want you to be amused by some of this. There, I feel like in uh, throughout the like the two thousands, two thousand two thousand nine, when we entered that sort of neo-grindhouse era mm-hmm. uh, where a lot of these 
old exploitation movie ideas were being presented, but a lot of them were just whiffed really badly. Yeah. Uh, they were made for you know equally low budgets, but they felt that the concept was enough to be entertaining rather mm. than actually making it entertaining. You still had to put some personality yeah. into it. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I feel like that's really lazy exploitation movie making. Yeah. Uh, relying on a concept, relying yeah. on a star, relying on mood. No, you have to constantly entertain us. Yeah, and there's, keep the, our there's the philosophy where we're going to try to throw a lot of interesting things at you and we're going to make them as best we can. Yeah. Uh, that's That second part is key. So this movie clearly has a very low budget. They don't have a lot of great actors. They, 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 they uh, save it for some key sequences, though. There's some fun-looking bits. Fun-looking bits. Um, there's some cool monsters. There's some cool practical monsters. Yeah, there's a, there's one demon that's allowed to, like, wander the earth. Yeah. And it's this weird, like kind of dumpy-looking rock monster. Yeah, this big, big bruiser-looking thing with a big mouth where, where its yeah. face ought to be. And it, you know, it swings around this big knife thing on a chain and kills yeah. a bunch of people. Yeah, it looks, uh, like, it looks like Pyramid Head's brother. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah that part's fun. So, uh... So there's another wrinkle to all this. So Archangel yeah. Michael is trying to prevent, uh, trying to catch these Satanists. Yeah. But, and, why, but why do they want the Shroud of Turin? The, why do they want the Shroud of Turin? Well, as it turns out, uh, and I love this introductory sequence because it is stupid as fuck. Yes, it is. Uh, we, we cut to all of a sudden <laughs> a big like recital mm. and like a nine-year-old boy mm. is like walks up in front of everyone with a violin and he starts playing this incredible violin piece. Mm. And a guy in like you know glasses, clearly a mad scientist, very, very sinister looking guy. Yeah. and he says, "Yes, I have discovered a way to collect the DNA from the greatest people in history and turn them into children that you can adopt for millions of dollars. I give unto you nine-year-old Vivaldi. It's a clone. That kid is a clone of Vivaldi." <laughs> Culled from Vivaldi's remains and somehow has magical violin powers. Well, because Vivaldi was genetically predisposed to being a great violinist. He trained as a violinist and on the harpsichord as well. <laughs> he was not like a prodigy at night. Not, this all, is a, not all Mozart, you this know? This is a plot point from the G.I. Joe cartoon. Like, that's how we got Serpentor. <laughs> Serpentor was like, we're going to take the DNA. Steal Sergeant Slaughter's DNA. (laughs) We're going to take the DNA of like Napoleon and Attila Hahn and Genghis Khan. Historical despots mix them together. And And then also, but then also famous wrestler and part time G.I. Joe, (laughs) Sergeant Slaughter. (laughs) Real world wrestler was a a character on G.I. Joe. You remember what, uh, if memory serves, uh, Serpentor's great weakness was. Uh, because, Vivaldi? No, no, there was the one bit of DNA that the GI Joes were able to prevent them from getting uh. was Sun Tzu. Oh, so he was so actually so he was impatient, um. and he wasn't he wasn't a great strategist. So he had everything else <laughs> except that. Yeah, and I uh, thought that was hilarious. So, so, so this guy so is gonna... the super villain DNA extractor guy is uh-huh. in league with the Satanists, and they're stealing the shot of Turin so they can suck Jesus DNA. Uh huh. Out of the shroud and clone Christ. Yes. Why do they want to clone Christ? Well, first of all, that would be fun. Uh, <laughs> why not? Yeah. Uh, but it turns out uh-huh. that these Satanists have access to hell. There's a hole. Yeah. They have a portal. Yeah. Where they can sort of look down and yell down to Satan. It's like, hey, what's going on down there? Yeah. Oh, I-, I need a body. 
Yeah. I need to possess some, and he can, he can possess people. But, but human his, beings are so, weak. He's yeah. got such a stink of evil that he kills whoever he possesses. He, he burns through him really, yeah. really fast. He can't live in him for very long. The so only body some, that is so powerful that Lucifer could live in it mm. is Jesus Christ. <laughs> and they've been waiting for the genetic technology to get there, and then they stole the Shroud of Turin, mm. and now they're going to impregnate uh, the main character. No, uh, what's her name? Laura. Uh, they're going to impregnate her. With Jesus infected with Lucifer, that then talks to her and tries to take over her body as well. That leads to some weird bits. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for you, but there's a bit. You know that part when people are pregnant and their water breaks? Oh. <laughs> That scene in this movie, I'm just gonna, I, I'm just be on the lookout for it because you have not seen that before. Oh no, my water broke. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's really fucking weird. Um, there, there's a yeah. Okay, Th- this movie is absurd. Absolutely it's... top down from beginning to end. The last shot in the movie is one of the funniest last shots I've ever seen in a film. <laughs> and, and yeah, I don't want to s- spoil yeah. what that last shot is, but, but I do agree. It's, it's so um, stupid. There's all kinds of really bad lines of dialogue. There's yeah. a weird... That's a weird conceit. That's like, we're going to have... We're going to clone Jesus and have that be the Antichrist. That You know what? That's a new one. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that in a movie <laughs> that's, before. That's a little different. And that opens up an interesting... Like, make a sequel. Make an interesting kind of words. We isolated the Christ gene. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're injecting it into people. And now there's like millions of Christs <laughs> out there. Uh, all right. <laughs> Sure, that's that's a fun yeah. movie, right? I, I'm curious where that's going. It's, <laughs> as an inciting incident, it's interesting. I don't know where the plot goes from there. Yeah, this is uh, utter hogwash. The uh, issues with the movie is that it's not that good. Um, no, of course it's not good. It's the, very the, con- silly. the conceit is very silly, and you're having you're gonna have a good time laughing at it. But the action sucks. Uh, it's mer- really murkily filmed uh, mm. in that sort of. Uh, like digital Paul W.S. Anderson kind of way where things mm. start to become look really indistinct after a while. The settings yeah. aren't very interesting. The acting isn't great. We need... Uh, the actress who plays Laura does mm. her best. Like, she actually plays a couple different roles. She kind of yeah, gesticulates she, and gets to be possessed she, by She's Satan. having fun. Yeah. She's but having... She, she, she doesn't... At first, it yeah. seems like it's going to be a really one-note, mm. kind of bland protagonist character and then when she gets kidnapped it seems it's going to be kind of a one node mm. kind of oh no more bad things are happening to me character uh the third act of the movie is hers yeah <laughs> she is really doing her best to make it work and there are times when she really is there's a whole scene with her in a supply closet that yeah, is just that's, that's her acting yeah. and captivating the camera and good uh, for her I my wish, god i wish uh the archangel character were a little more like oh he's so full of character boring. and energy he's, he's so just boring sort of, yeah, he's so boring generic guy. yeah uh, yeah the action like I said kind of stinks um, yeah I didn't think it was as stinky and, I thought there's some fun action yeah. bits but okay like well like the the bit where the demon has the big like blade on a chain like, yeah that's that part's fun, fun right moment. yeah uh, and and additionally it this is like a, a one hour and fifty minute movie mm. and that's death for a B movie if mm. you're gonna it's... have a, a really salacious B movie with a lot of action and Satan stuff mm-hmm. you you want to be out in eighty nine minutes you want to be after the end of the credits I will say this though and I'll just in defense of the length mm. it doesn't really matter how long you are if you can keep our attention I, I, w- so. I was watching a movie I, I found out about a movie I'd never heard of before and I was like how have I never heard of this it stars Barry Bostwick and Kane Hodder it's called Project Metal Beast 
and it's about oh, yeah. a CIA agent who like injects himself with werewolf serum, and then he like gets cryogenically frozen and turned into a cyborg in the nineties. And I'm like, how have I not seen that? That sounds fucking awesome. And so it's on Tubi because of course it is. Uh. And so I put it on, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe this will be like kind of a fun B picture. It's like 80 minutes long. There's so much padding. Uh. There's so much padding. And I will say this for <clears throat> the Devil Conspiracy. It doesn't feel padded. No. There's actually tons of incident, and the plot is constantly like moving forward and evolving in weird ways. And even though some of the characters are, you know, just reams of draft paper, <laughs> uh, it, honestly, I wasn't bored. Right, I, yeah. I was not through the whole movie. I was never bored by this. It was stupid, <laughs> but I was never bored. And I, and I think that's more important for a B yeah. movie than being short. I was never bored with this movie. I, it's one of those movies that like it's it's really stupid yeah. and it's quite bad yeah. but I, I still kind of want people to see it <laughs> I want people to see this I want, I feel like this is someone described it online I've heard two descriptions of this online uh-huh. uh, one was Dan Brown on crack which is not altogether inaccurate, but the more accurate one was uh, it's a, if Paul W. S. Anderson did the Book of Revelation. Oh, there you go. And I'm like, that's a pretty good description because Paul W. S. Anderson, for the most part, is a ludicrous filmmaker. Yeah, he makes I mean, just nonsense ninety percent of the time. He he hasn't made like sort of he doesn't make serious dramas. He makes these no, sort of when he, steely overwrought action pictures yeah. that don't make any sense. And, and the more he tries to make sense, the less the movies work. Honestly, mm-hmm. like like he did Pompeii is nonsense. I love Pompeii. Like <laughs> Pompeii is awful. But it's I didn't say it wasn't awful. I said I love it. <laughs> There's right. a bit of a difference. <laughs> and I feel like I feel like that's what they're doing here. This is just pure, unabashed, unapologetic. Nonsense. And I loved it. <laughs> I cannot tell people not to... Here's the thing. There are elements of this movie because it is about, you know, okay, you're going to become the mother of the Antichrist and stuff. And there's some stuff like that, like a Rosemary's Baby kind of way that is upsetting and some people are going to be turned off by those elements. That's in there. Um, it's so absurd that it... That that doesn't add a, a a sort of an impenetrable stink to the movie, okay. and I think for the most part the movie is just pure blissful inanity, <laughs> and if you can keep that going, yeah, and you can keep me like because after because after a while if you're just inane on one level mm-hmm. I'll get used to it and yeah. then I'll be bored. Well, and there's but they also, kept upping uh, the game. They kept making it stupid. Yeah. And well, and what's really notable is they are playing it straight. This isn't. Yeah. There was an insufferable version of this where they try to make it like cute, like yeah, kind of like yeah. cheeky. Yeah. And other than other than that, that radio that's, sequence, and that's, that's that's hard to do. Yeah. yeah. Not not every filmmaker can be cheeky. And, yeah. Uh, I without I, without like really torpedoing the drama or, yeah. or anything really. Yeah. Like Sam Raimi yeah. can be cheeky. Yeah, Sam Raimi movie. could make a movie like this, no problem. Yeah. Well, oh God, maybe be... maybe earlier. Sam, Sam Raimi, Raimi but... doing the Book of Revelation would be funny. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that'd be very very. But funny. don't give him a big budget. No, small, his, his movies are better when he has a small budget. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like Spider Man Two is very good. That's his, his good his great big budget movie. Agree. But, uh, I agree. Uh, anyway, Devil Conspiracy, hell of a thing, man. <laughs> If you have a chance to see that Devil Conspiracy... That should be the Cons- tagline. Hell of a thing. You should. That isn't bad, actually. You, if you have a chance to see a double feature of The Devil Conspiracy and Skinamarink... Oh, jeez. That will be an yeah, incredible day. Off, yeah. The question is, which one do you see first? <laughs> 
I think you see Skinnamarink first and you chase it with a devil conspiracy. All right. I think it's probably the best thing for your sanity. Anyway, um, okay, we still have a bunch more movies. Uh, why don't you tell me about No Bears? Okay, uh, I will tell you about No Bears. Um, more no, whiplash. No, no linking material whatsoever. <laughs> None. Uh, because No Bears is the latest film from uh, Iranian filmmaker uh, Jafar Panahi, who uh, made a film called This Is Not a Film, and is... In, in 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 real life, in deep trouble with the Iranian government. And yeah. uh, this is not a film is about his house arrest. And from what I understand, uh, he's uh, served a six-year sentence in Iran for... Uh, Filmmaking. Yeah, for, for film, essentially, yeah, being an artist and, and, and underneath this regime that does not support it. Uh, in this film, Jafar Panahi plays a fictionalized version of himself. Yeah. And there's all these layer, layers of meta narrative going on in this movie. So it opens with this sort of conventional, uh, mainstream looking drama about this couple that's trying to flee Iran and they're trying to get a passport. Mm-hmm. And uh, partway through the scene, they turn to the camera and say, Was that good? And it turns out they're being directed in a movie, film within a film. Okay. Uh, however, the actors in that film within a film are going through a very similar uh, struggle. They're also trying to get okay. passports so they can leave. So they're kind of dramatizing their own. Uh, struggle. The film is being directed by Jafar Panahi, who uh, is not allowed to film in Iran. So the film is actually being made just over the border in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And he is directing via remote. So he's on a laptop. Yeah. But the only way you can do that is to go to this really remote town just near the border, this little tiny village, and direct from there. And the problem is the this village is rife with all of uh, a bunch of very strange uh, like customs and superstitions that he's just not at all familiar with, and he's constantly in danger of offending them in some way through like little acts. He takes a picture in one point, and they're concerned that uh, one of the men in the picture was like photographed with a young woman, and that could cause a scandal. So uh, he has to go through, like, there's this big deal about how he has to give the film back and you know, the meaning of the picture, how he didn't mean to do any of that. And he has to go through this weird purification rite, where all of the elders of the village ask him to do this thing, and that, that sort of begins to escalate. And there's a speech partway through where uh, it's explained that there's bears all around this village. They just sort of surround it, which is why people are afraid to leave. Mm. And of course, there are no bears. Right. Uh, there's it, so it's a pretty clear symbol for all of the uh, like the fears and superstitions and oppression of the government that's sort of always hanging around uh, Jafar Panahi. This is a wonderful film, uh, not just for its sort of narrative complexity, but also for... Uh, how Jafar Panahi is really kind of criticizing himself this time. Hmm. How he's he's saying that there's... He's, at first, you might be tempted to think there's something kind of noble about pushing through a repressive regime to make art and get art out in the world. But this is a film that argues that that can be actually incredibly destructive, uh, not just to himself, but to all of the people around him and how the actors in it aren't getting anything out of this and how the small village is being harmed by his presence and how he has no freedom at the end of all of this. He's not helping anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's actually... Uh, an interesting self-condemnation in a way. Jafar yeah. Panahi is trying to say that he he is you know, compelled to push through and make this art and make these movies, mm. but it's not necessarily for the greater good. Well, I mean, that's the trick when you're when you're 
when you're trying to speak out against a, a tyrannical regime or a, mm-hmm. or a fascist regime or any kind of regime, um, where speaking out can get you in in serious hot water, yeah, legally or otherwise, um, if it involves anyone but you, the question is: Is it worth their sacrifice too? Yeah. Uh, and that's a question that it's tricky because it's a question that other people have to answer for themselves in some regards. But um, for the record, because I don't think it was clear, Jafar Panahi is currently serving six years in jail pretty much as a result of this film. Ah, OK. Uh, the the Iranian government is is not happy it. with it. And if they if they apparently do not see it as a work of self-criticism, <laughs> they see it as a work of of of, of, of political origin. Um a lot of people are rallying to try to get Jafar Panahi and other uh, imprisoned filmmakers in Iran out because they should be, obviously. But um, yeah, so it's it's a it's a that poor guy. Yeah, <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, I, I did not see No Bears. Uh, I I had a screener, it's, but it, it expired and I wasn't able to get another well, one in time. If, if, um, yeah. if I had seen this before the end of the year, this yeah. might have made my top ten list. Yeah, just for how how emotionally rich it is and how the little miniature mm. dramas actually play out in very terse and believable ways. It like scene by scene, as we see Jafar Panahi, you know, and act, you know, interact with the people in this village yeah. and how there's this weird miscommunication and there's a lot of, uh, tension. The, the locals are actually like kind of like quirky and fun, but start mm. to, feel a little menacing after a while they're mm-hmm. led by uh like the village elder like the chief but the, the village this village elder guy just walks around in like a maroon sport coat and a knit cap like he, he looks like a a, a, a cab driver mm. uh and uh so yeah there's there's like a lot of personality and a lot of weird uh, interactions going on throughout that i think jafar panahi is careful to bring a lot of humanity to uh he doesn't turn he doesn't turn anybody into sort of uh, uh, caricatures. He works mm. on this very uh, realistic uh, s- sort of uh, milieu. Um, How many times have you said milieu this episode? Just that's the first time. No, it is not. It's not. No, you use milieu right at the, right at the front. Sure, I'll do it. Okay. I'll say it a lot. It's, it's a word. I know. I'm just saying. Just, <laughs> I hope everyone. I hope everyone remembers to take a drink. That's yeah. the rule. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds amazing, and I need to see it. It, it, it is. It's yeah. really, really quite amazing. I, I, I deeply encourage people to see this. Yeah. One. Um, okay. D- uh, deeply encourage. <laughs> enthusiastically encourage. I've, I I got two more movies that I've seen, and All you right. got one. So uh, should I? Do you want me to talk about yeah. Sick or Sheen Ultraman? Uh, let's see Sheen Ultraman for the end. So talk, okay. Tell me about Sick. Okay. So Sick. Sick is a new movie. It's debuting on Peacock, uh, and it is the first film uh, to have a co-writing credit from uh kevin williamson in many years that wasn't part of the scream franchise yeah uh sick uh is part of the sort of lockdown wave of filmmaking which is my pet term for movies that were either made during lockdown or shortly after when are explicitly about lockdown so this would be films like uh host or kimmy uh or uh, dash cam and and now sick uh sick is a slasher film uh, and it stars uh, Gideon Adlin, and oh dang it, what the hell is the name of the uh, of her co-star? Hang on, I want to make sure I get their name right because it's it's a somewhat unusual one. Um, it's Gideon Adlin and Bethlehem Million. Okay, uh, they're college students, and uh, at the 
right at the start of the pandemic of the pandemic lockdown. It's April 2020. Uh, they decide they're going to go to uh, one of their parents' cabins, uh-huh. and just that's where they're going to hunker down. That's where they're going to like it's it's out in the middle of nowhere. They won't be exposed to anyone, and they'll just hang out there. They'll sun themselves by the lake. They'll smoke pot and they'll have a good time. Uh, meanwhile, there's a slasher out there. Uh, yeah. at the opening, the opening sequence starts off pretty, pretty creepy and it kind of loses it after a while, but, uh, it's, uh, it's a grocery store on April 3rd, 2020. And if you'll recall what that early, early, early part of the pandemic was like the first few months, uh, grocery stores were weird. They were <laughs> well, people were hoarding stuff. People were hoarding stuff. People would like people had like early on just like we're gonna get all the toilet paper. I'm like, you're not gonna poop that much. The, the, <laughs> the thought was like we're not gonna be able to go to a store for a year, so we yeah. need to stock up on necessities. Right, but the thing is that a lot of people were stocking up on necessities as if it was like a hurricane mm. coming or an earthquake preparedness thing, mm. and not. It's it's a virus, and we're gonna you know we're gonna occasionally be able to go out and get groceries. So regardless, impossible to get toilet paper. Mm. Everything is picked over. You know, good luck finding a can of peas. Like basically, everything is just yeah, it was weird. Just it's, it's every, very weird. Everything is like they're, they're poorly stocked. Everyone's like kind of just trudging around like a ghost. Everyone's wearing a mask. One person coughs, and everyone just sort of like looks around. <laughs> like it was really <clears throat> fucking weird. Um, and. A guy starts getting texts from some strange person who says they can see them. Very scream. Okay. Without any of like the self-aware, you know, what's your favorite pandemic movie? That kind of thing. <laughs> no, it's just basically like, well, hey. Wouldn't that have been something? Hey, you want to come to a party? You got to be COVID tested. And it's like, are you tested? And the guy's like, none of your fucking business. And they're like, I can see you. And they show a picture of him from across the grocery store. And it's across the grocery store. And of course, everyone's wearing a mask. Which is kind of creepy if you think about it. What is one of the tropes of a slasher movie? They wear a mask. Yeah. Everyone's wearing a mask. That's potentially very unnerving. That any one of those people could just be the killer and they could just be the waving dude and you wouldn't know it was them. Hmm. Anyway, guy goes back into his apartment and gets murdered. <laughs> like, it's not, oh, that, oh, that's that. Like, it... it doesn't really do anything with it other than that. It goes back to the apartment yeah. and he dies the way he would have died in any other slasher movie. Yeah. It's weird and frustrating. And then we cut to these two other uh, uh, teenagers, basically. They go to a cabin in the woods. There's a guy there in a mask, presumably the same guy. I'm not going to tell you how the plot unfolds. Uh, and he sneaks his way into the house, starts stalking him. Very quickly, after like you know, fifteen minutes of the, of dialogue, it turns into actually kind of an extended chase. There aren't really enough people to create much of a body count, mm. uh, so it's basically just the the killer chasing them a lot. But the chase, again, is something you could have seen in any movie. Yeah. So it's fine. Like, it's directed by John Hyams. It's Peter Hyams' son. Um, he directed, like, the two, like, weirdly good late-era Universal Soldier movies. Yeah. Um, and he's he's got an eye. You know, he's not a bad filmmaker. Um, yeah. he, he, can make a, he can make a competent chase scene, and he does. But aside from, like, one kind of cool bit with a raft and one pretty dang cool bit, like, at the front door of the house, which I won't ruin... Um, what we've got is a slasher movie that's just the skeleton of it, and they didn't really throw anything onto it. Like, when, when Halloween came around and kind of codified what a slasher was and presented 
the elements of a slasher in such a way that anyone could copy it. Um, all you really had to do was take the bare bones, like structure, of Halloween or Friday the Thirteenth, uh, and change the skin of it. Yeah, you know, uh, the killer has a different motivation, a different mask, and it takes place in a different location. That's kind of all you need to change, and you can get away with it, and you can make, at the very least, a satisfying movie that is just different enough that you can sort of sell it as its own thing, and people will appreciate it because that's all we came to see. Mm-hmm. Um, here, the only thing that they really changed was that it takes place during COVID, uh, but ultimately, other than like kind of like affecting the motive for what's happening, this could have been any slasher movie, hmm. and unfortunately. It's not particularly interesting. As a, it's not like it's not like so well-crafted. You kind of just have to like go, listen, it's nothing new, but it's so well-made. Yeah. It's just sort of fine. Yeah. The characters are just sort of fine. That's too The bad. kills are just sort of fine. There's one kill that's kind of cool, but mostly it's just sort of fine. Uh, and yeah, it just feels like you gave yourself this opportunity. We're going to be the slasher movie set at COVID during the COVID lockdown, I'm like, there's got to be more you could have done with that. Yeah. There has to have been more you could have done with that. And you set it at a cabin in the woods, isolated from everyone with very few people. I'm like, I feel like the thing that would be freakier is if you set it in town and no <laughs> one's leaving their apartment. Like you're like being killed out in the street and no one wants to leave because they're afraid of getting COVID. Mm. Like that's something you could have done. To make make advantage of this, but instead, there's just like you've got a concept you're doing almost nothing with, oh. and it's just so feels, what's the point? Yeah. It just feels really perfunctory, and it's, it's not terrible. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call it like a piece of shit or anything like that. It's it's fine, but like you give us a premise, you set it up in the opening, and then you do very little with it, and it's just kind of a bummer. Mm. Uh, so again, if you just want to see a generic slasher, it's okay. But even just you watch the opening scene and you think to yourself, oh, this could be like, there's so many opportunities you could do with this. And they have interest in almost none of them. And it's just it's kind of a bummer. Oh, honestly. Like, it's not awful. It's just kind of a bummer. I don't know. It's just un- not un- very interesting. Un- un- uncreative. That's, uncreative. That's, the yeah. characters aren't that interesting. They I mean, carry it on their own. I, it's I, just... I've, I've always held that slasher movies get a lot of power from like actually how banal the genre is in general. Sure. The, that uh, they, they fall, they adhere to such specific tropes that most of them kind of resemble each other. But mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of fans of the genre appreciate. Sure. That, uh, you know, what, what are we looking for? We're looking for creative kills, interesting killers. Yeah. We're not looking for interesting stories. Yeah, same thing uh, with romantic comedies. Yeah. I want like an interesting, meet yeah. cute, interesting location, something that tears them apart towards the end that's a little different than usual. Yeah, yeah. Great. <laughs> Done. No, that, that's kind of all you want. Where can you they want, have a first kiss that's different? Boom. You, know, you want a, a di- different toppings on the same McDonald's hamburger. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, there's not a lot that you need to do. Yeah. And it, it, the it seems like even, and it's in, it seems like this one doesn't even do that. Yeah, it's just it's just really straightforward. And like you could you could take this script, remove the COVID parts. Yeah. And I don't think it would take you more than half an hour. Hmm. Like it would just be basically a very you get the same basic movie out of it. And yeah, it's just sort of it's fine. Mm. This is not very interesting. All right, well, there's a new Hirokatsu Korean, and I know you're dying to talk about it. Mm. So tell me about the new well, Hirokatsu. Hi- Hi- Hirokazu, not Hirokatsu. Oh, sorry um, about that. Hirokazu Korean um, is is a filmmaker I'm very fond of. Um, I feel like his film Afterlife is one of the best films of the '90s. Mm. Um, 
uh, that, that's a film about the afterlife. Uh, he made a film called Shoplifters about uh, sort of this found family who has to steal things to survive. Uh, but in a very like sort of uplifting sort of a way. It's not like a dark crime movie. Uh, he made a film called Nobody Knows, which is about uh, young children who are abandoned by their mother and just sort of their life and how they have to, to put things together. Hirokazu Koreeda is very interested in people who have been discarded, the people who are cast off from society, the people who are sort of ignored, who, have, who uh, sort of fall through the cracks. He makes movies about them. Uh, and... Uh, Broker, his newest film, which he filmed in Korea with Korean actors, uh, is literally about abandoned babies. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, oh, uh, what's his name? Um, actor from, uh, uh, Parasite, um, the dad. Oh, God. His, uh, Song, Song Kang-ho. Yeah, okay, you got that. Song Kang-ho, yeah. uh, plays, uh, this guy who, with his partner, uh, Wait by a church's baby box. The church has a baby box where uh, mothers are encouraged to abandon their babies. If you're going to abandon your baby, at least do it here where they'll be safe and the baby stays in the box. And they are able to break into the camera footage, uh, erase the camera footage, uh, steal the babies themselves, and then uh, sell the babies to uh, rich couples who are looking for children. Okay, so this is like so, that guy in Cop Rock who sang the the baby merchant song. It, so, uh, however, in there and all of the babies they find, they say have notes on them from the mother saying, "I'll be back for you," and the mothers don't come back. They're very cynical about this endeavor, but uh, they're in debt. They're doing this kind of out of desperation. Uh, yeah. There's nothing dark about what they're doing. There's nothing sinister about what they're doing. In fact, they care very much about these infants, and they want to make yeah. sure that they have uh, a good home. They've just sort of found a way to mm. facilitate and sort of uh, skip past the orphanage process in Korea, yeah. which uh, over the course of the movie they explain is not the best. Like, it's not horrible, but a lot of kids just sort of also fall through the cracks throughout that system. They grow up in orphanages, and then they're just out. They never really have a parent. Yeah. Uh, the mother does come back. And and it's she's a young mother. She comes back for the infant, and they and he says, "Well, we have your baby. Uh, why don't you? And, but you're still interested in like not raising the child, right? So why don't you join us, and we'll go on this road trip to contact these people who say they're interested in in buying the baby." And it turns into Little Miss Sunshine, what? where they get into a van and they kind of form this ersatz family unit and they start growing really close as they're looking for new parents for the child. Oh. And they, you know, we get to know the child. It's a cute little baby. Well, you know, well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's centered on it's a movie centered on a cute little baby. So of course, yeah. You know, I mean, like everything's a little warm. There's, there's, there's two a, kinds of yeah, movie babies: of the, cute ones and like exorcist babies you know like demonic <laughs> possession yeah, babies and there's, the only uh, two. there's a little kid who's at the orphanage who goes along with them and you know the mom of the infant and the and uh the the, the two broker guys are sort of on the road and they're also trying to you know suss out who might be interested in buying this child meanwhile the cops are on their tail well yeah and there's two police officers uh in in, in a car who are you know alternately contacting the mother and they're trying to catch uh sung kang ho uh in the act they can't arrest him until he actually accepts money for the child 
Uh, and over the course of the movie, they start to see what he's doing and like what it is. And uh, the main cop, um, I forgot her name, but she's uh, completely interested in sticking to the letter of the law. We're mm-hmm. going to catch him. It doesn't matter if what he's doing is noble. There's a bunch. This is as melodramatic as Hirokazu Koreeda has ever gotten. He's mm. usually a pretty subtle filmmaker. He t- tends to yeah. treat his characters with like kind of emotional re- realism and a kind of a lighter touch. It's feel his films tend to feel pretty grounded. He's been compared to Ozu. I'm not mm. sure if you ever saw his film Still Walking. Yeah, but that's it. that's an Ozu riff through and through, and including all of the themes about family. Uh, here he's playing a little bit broader. It's a crime story. There's, uh, you know, fight scenes. Guys get beat up in the in the movie, and uh, the emotional moments come um, much higher in this movie. It feels actually really almost like a first, uh, the kind of first indie film you might see a filmmaker make. And there's this wonderful scene near the end where all of the characters get on a Ferris wheel, and they're sort of confessing their feelings and bidding each other farewell. And you understand that this is really kind of this temporary scenario and it's incredibly touching. Mm. Uh, it's really, really good. That's good. Yeah. Um, because I remember I, you, you saw like a Coriander film not that long ago that wasn't that good. Well, he made one in France with Juliette Binoche and Catherine Deneuve. And you'd think, yeah. oh, you know, just get those, amazing. Three, get those yeah. three in a room and it's really, really wonderful. And that one just didn't do it. Like, uh, yeah. what was the title? I don't really I, I um, didn't see it. It had a really uh, generic title. Yeah. Um, Hanging around. It was called The Truth. Oh, God, that's, that is yeah. generic. There was a, the film was called Oof. The Truth. I just had to look it up. La Verite. Oof, awful. And yeah, Julia Binoche and Catherine Neuve was in it. And Ethan Hawke was in that one as well. Uh, Good cast. Yeah, it was about the relationship between a mother and a daughter. And it just wasn't that interesting. Like, it Lord. didn't delve into the drama uh, very well. It's the, the one time I've been disappointed by a film of his. Uh, this one, he's back and he's... Like I said, he's playing pretty broad, but he's doing it right. He understands how to make these moments pay off. Um, it, it's a little out of character for him. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a result of him working in Korea or if he's just trying something new. Uh, but yeah, it, it functions really well as this incredibly moving tearjerker. Sounds great. Yeah. Okay. So it's what, what what my mom might call like a three hanky movie. Oh, that's right. It'll make you cry so you need your handkerchief. All right, uh, okay, the last one we're going to be reviewing is uh, the latest uh, Sheen film. Uh, we had previously had uh, Sheen Godzilla, uh, which was, I believe, co-directed by Hideaki Anno, who wrote the screenplay. He also created uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and uh, Shinji Higuchi, uh, who had worked on like some of the Gamera movies and the live-action Attack on Titan films. Um their film, Machine Godzilla, came out in 2016. Mm-hmm. It's fucking great. Yeah. yeah it's Legitimately one, one great of, movie. One of the better Godzilla films. Yeah. I mean, I, you've seen them all. I've yeah. only seen about a third of the Godzilla movies. So okay. I'm, I'm passingly familiar with what's yeah. happened that, with the character. That's about 10 movies. That's yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. not insubstantial. It's just it's just not it's not enough. Um, so I couldn't say like exactly where Shin Godzilla fits in like overall. But in terms of like just trying to get back to the roots of the character and kind of strip down mm. all the accoutrement and like the other monsters and everything like that and just get back to the Godzilla as like a sort of a modern social... Uh, political metaphor, yeah, well, um, uh, and, and and like a metaphor for a disaster, like an actual real world yeah, disaster. I, I, I feel like um, Shin Godzilla is kind of explicitly about uh, the Fukushima disaster. Yeah, um, it, the the metaphor of him, uh, him, I say Godzilla, being a metaphor for uh, the atomic bomb is 
quite old at this point and it's quite yeah. widely accepted so i think it, it tries to yeah. change things a little bit well, it's trying it's it's try to be topical so it's it, also it very much about uh, uh bureaucracy mm-hmm. and how however well organized the japanese government is they're not going to be able to handle something chaotic like godzilla indeed and uh, and godzilla is a monster in that one like okay. it has it first shows really up as this big like kind of fish thing that just sort of flops through a city and you can tell it's not it doesn't have a goal in mind. There's it's no just a sort of animal. It, yeah. yeah, it's it clearly clearly doesn't have anything on its mind. But the, like it's it's irradiated in such a way that it is constantly mutating into different versions of itself yeah, and, and growing and blasting. It creates sense of scale to that. it. Like that movie is great. That's a legitimately yeah. great Godzilla movie. Um, and now, uh, uh, technically seven years, but I think it was it was this movie got delayed because of the pandemic. Supposed to come out a while ago, but uh, they've done a similar take on Ultraman, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very long-running uh, Japanese uh, franchise uh, that, in my experience, never was quite as big in America as Godzilla was. Um, you can get it, and a lot of it is on uh, where else? Tubi. <laughs> um, you can even watch the original 1960s series. I rewatched a few episodes. They cleaned it up nice. Like, it's a good-looking show. It's very colorful and imaginative. Um, and the premise of Ultraman is uh, a whole bunch of giant monsters have started attacking Japan again. Uh, except in this yeah, universe... You can, you can almost see, like, the uh, the opening title crawl. Japan is under attack! Exclamation point. Yeah, dot, dot, dot. Mon- again. Uh, but Monsters this is, have returned. This is just... It, it's interesting. Like, it, it, kaiju... In have became like as a genre in Japan, like the way like, like zombies did here, where you can just make any movie, set it in the zombie apocalypse, and we all just sort of accept it. You don't even need to justify it anymore. Yeah. Whereas in Japan, if you just want to do like a giant monster movie, good, done. We just accept the giant monsters attack once in a while in genre films. That's just a thing that happens. Um, except in the Ultraman series, they don't have a Godzilla. Mm. Godzilla doesn't exist. He's not the bouncer kicking all the asshole kaiju out of Japan. (laughs) So what we have is a group called the SSSP. Uh, I'm trying to remember what that's... uh, The S-Class Species Suppression Protocol. (laughs) Okay. Which is a bunch of really smart people. And they go to the scene when a kaiju attacks. They use all of their brain power and all of their technology to figure out what the weakness of the monster is. And they try to take down that monster. And they're pretty good at it. Yeah. Uh, however, one monster attacks at the beginning of the series and happens in the movie as well. The movie is a retelling of the origin of Ultraman. Um, and they're kind of helpless to stop it until another giant creature arrives and this one is and a giant that's, metallic that's Ultraman, that's yeah. Ultraman he's a giant metallic humanoid with kind of like a helmet head and like kind of bug eyes it's kind of a giant robot basically looks like a giant robot although it's not actually a robot mm. um and he kicks the shit out of that monster and everyone's like okay well I'm glad he kicked the shit out of that monster but that raises even more questions that we do not have answers to. And so now it's up to the SSSP to figure out who this Ultraman is. Is Ultraman really on our side? Uh, And it turns out, and fans of the series will know this. It's like knowing that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. But the movie kind of plays it out like you're not supposed to know who Ultraman is. Ultraman is uh, one of the scientists uh, in disguise. He has a a little remote control that turns him into 
makes him grow into yeah. an adult. Remote. And the idea was this guy was like trying to save a little kid uh, from the kaiju attack, and he died in the process. And Ultraman uh, is an alien being who saw his heroic act, yeah, and decided to take over his body in order to run around on Earth and save it from uh, alien menace. Yeah. Uh, so he's now become like a fusion of the person he was and this totally separate alien entity. And in Shin Ultraman, they never come out and say it, but after a while, you get the impression that this is almost like a Christ allegory in a okay. way where it's like, yeah, I'm the son of God, but I'm also human. And that perspective is really important. And like other godlike beings don't get humanity the way I do. And it's really important uh, that I do. Um, so... In Sheen Ultraman, it's not just one giant monster thing attacks and will Ultraman be able to stop it. It's actually episodic, just like the show. Hmm. And every eh, 25, 30 minutes or so in the movie, uh, the storyline shifts rather dramatically. So it opens with a couple of kaiju attacking. One of them is invisible. Can we stop the invisible giant monster? Yes. Uh, and then over the course of the film, they run into a series of very different alien threats, mm. some of which are human-sized and are oh. allegedly diplomats. And they're trying to create a, a sort of an alliance with humanity in order to stop other aliens who want you dead. Except we also want you all dead, but for very different reasons. I never knew there were so many reasons to want literally the entire human race to be dead. <laughs> like, if they're all in Sheen Ultraman. Um and what we get over the course of it, and there's weird stuff where, like, members of the SSSP are, like, transformed into, like, 50-foot-tall giants, and they don't even realize uh. it, and it's fucking weird. What ends up coming of this, really, is they're so overwhelming. It's like the entire MCU happened at once. <laughs> but because we get the perspective of a bunch of normal people trying to deal with it, uh. it's like... If all that shit happened at once, there are giant monsters, there are giant aliens, there are aliens on other planets that are part of like a united nation of planets and we're not part of it, but maybe we could be biological weapons and so we have to become biological weapons to save ourselves or maybe that's why we need to be destroyed and then you no longer have any sense of self. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a completely, exist it's not even existentially frightening, it's existentially confusing to live in an Ultraman world. And I think that's what Sheen Ultraman, which was directed by Shinji Yaguchi and this time only written by Hideaki Hano, uh, that's the thing that comes across in this movie, is that it's full of all these great action sequences mm -hmm. and wonderful, fun, weird things happening. But Vin by the end of it all, it's like... Vintage it music yeah. and special effects CGI, but made to look like... Guys in suits. Yeah, not not in like a campy way where you can see the wires or anything like that. It's just capturing the original vibe. Yeah. yeah. In a very, very satisfying way. And I love it, honestly. I feel like there are too many uh, American CGI spectacles, even big ones. Mm. They just don't have enough personality. No. They don't have their own vibe. They don't have their own style. They don't have their own like way of looking at the world well, if, and way of looking at monsters look, uh, and superheroes. And it's just kind of a bummer. If you look back at some of those old Toho kaiju films... Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, uh, because there were people in suits, they were very careful to film them openly in bright spaces. Yeah. So you could see the mayhem and you know, see the yeah. miniature building. That's what we're here. The, the monster foot comes down on it. And uh, the monsters like kind of regarded the space they were in. It was a little tiny soundstage, so they mm. kind of had to. Yeah. But I think moments like that let the monsters sort of gather little bits of character. Yeah. The monsters have a bit of personality. Mm-hmm. 
And you watch something like the American Godzilla films, you never have those moments. No. There's a lot of smoky fights and fights in the rain and fights at night because they're trying yeah. to make it look sort of sinister for some reason. Why? No, uh, sinister it, enough. There's a King Ghidorah is there for fuck's sake. Yeah. That's sinister. It's fine. Have it open in sort of like an open space where you can get mm-hmm. don't break the like the line of action keep it yeah. really make it look a little bit like a sound treat stage. it like a wrestling match and like in a, like a big set that looks like yeah. a miniature city from what i've seen of shin ultraman i haven't seen all of shin ultraman yeah you're so able I'm, to see i'm not some reviewing of it. it but yeah. uh, there's at least a couple fight scenes where they keep the axis of action incredibly clear yeah it's very nicely shot mm-hmm. it's very nicely handled there's a great sense of scale there's a great sense of wonder but it's also incredibly weird. And I think that they embrace how weird it is. And they want you to know that its weirdness isn't supposed to be cute. And it isn't supposed to be something we accept. It should be something that makes us feel small. Yeah. yeah. And that's something I think is really, really fascinating. There's a great um, Marvel Comics series called Marvels. Yeah. Came out in the 90s. It was uh, painted by Alex Ross. and was written by Kurt Busiek. And the entire thing was, here is, like, the history of the early years of the Marvel Universe in comics. Yeah. But it's all from the perspective of a human reporter who reported on all of it and wasn't privy to everything and looked on it as, like, oh, gods have returned to Earth. And what does that mean? Hmm. What does that say about us? How are we supposed to go on about our lives? What do our lives mean? And that's something Shin Ultraman is about, in a way. I think it's really exciting. You get all the thrills you would want from a big action movie. You get all the intrigue, plenty of humor. Like, it's it's a really entertaining movie from top to bottom. But I love that they acknowledge that, like, for people and in the audience and people in the movie, um, this would be overwhelming. And it would be totally bizarre to find out that not only are humans not the center of the universe, which we'd like to think that we are, but we're insignificant to it. Mm. And if other beings did show up here, they wouldn't give a shit about us. <laughs> we el- would not be important to them. God's thing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is. It's kind of Lovecraftian in a way. And it's really fascinating. I love it. I think it's really great. It's yeah, not I, quite I, as powerful as Sheen Ultraman, but I think it's a really... Shin, you mean Shin Godzilla. It's not quite as powerful as Shin Godzilla, sorry. Mm. But it is it, it is great and of a piece, and I'm really glad I saw it. I'm not a huge Ultraman fan, so I know I knew some of the references. Oh, that monster's on the show, mm. that kind of thing. So I know they were like playing with the iconography, and someone who's a big Ultraman fan might be able to tell you more about that. But I can say is that they used the original vibe, both stylistically and in terms of narrative storytelling, episodic mm-hmm. structure, to create something really distinct and cool. Yeah, well, what I've seen is great. Yeah, I can't review it though. I, I hope you finish it because it's a, you get a chance to finish it because it's really, yeah. really good. Um, so anyway, that is it for our movie reviews for the week. Let's go through them uh, in a in a review roundup. Mm-hmm. We review movies on a scale of C minus to C plus, where C plus is the best a movie can get that is above average. We genuinely recommend that movie. Uh, then there's a C. A C is average. Some good, some bad. Might be better for some audiences than others. And then a C- minus is below average. We generally don't recommend those movies. We think they're not very good. They're below <laughs> average. Uh, on that note, I'm going to give Sheen Ultraman a big old C+. Okay. I think this is really exciting blockbuster filmmaking with a perspective and a point. Uh, and it also delivers on all of the excitement levels you could possibly want. So I love it to pieces. Nice. Uh, on the let's uh, what was the last thing you did? Uh, broker. Uh, broker. Yeah. Tell me about what, broker. What's what's broker? Uh, it's that's a C plus. I really love broker. It's it's very uh, sweet. It's incredibly moving. 
it's a little melodramatic for mm. this filmmaker, but that's no sin. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really, really quite good. All right. Uh, sick. Uh, sick is a low C. Okay. Uh, if you just want to see a generic slasher, it's okay. Why would you just want to see a generic slasher, especially one that clearly says at the beginning that it has more promise than that? So it's a bit of a bummer that it's not more than it is, but it's not incompetent. It's just kind of okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, big old, big old low C. Uh, let's see what we got here. No bears. No, no bear. That's, that's one of the best films of last year, this year, uh -huh. whichever year. Um, it, it's really, really terrific. It's really, uh, rich and complicated with, uh, wonderful points to make about the power of art, about repressive politics, about, uh, how mm. the two, uh, butt heads and not always to great results. Yeah. Uh, the devil conspiracy. Uh, this is a C plus C minus movie. <laughs> okay, it's like explain. It, it's 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 a piece of shit, but I was really entertained. Okay, so it's like a four star one star movie. There you go. <laughs> okay, uh, so are are you literally giving it both, or which one? I'm, you have, I'm you giving have... I'm giving it both. I'm, I can do that. It's my prerogative. I didn't think you could actually, but okay. Uh, I'm gonna give it a it's, C plus. It's, it's, it's our scale. I can make it up. I suppose you can. I'm gonna give it a C plus. I had a ton of fun. <laughs> okay. I had. A, I don't care. I had a ton of fun watching this incredibly stupid movie, and I think that the movie, while maybe it isn't trying to be like a broad comedy. I think the movie wants us to have fun. I don't think the movie is is do, is accomplishing something it wasn't trying to do. I think it's supposed to be, like to be it's, uh... it's supposed to be outlandish. Yeah. It clearly knows it's outlandish, and I think it succeeds at being outlandish. And it is deeply entertaining. And I think this is exactly the kind of movie that you would want to like turn into like a big midnight movie. Like yeah. you would you would sh this movie needs to be found by that audience. So if you get a chance to see it, you're gonna have fun. It's fucking wild. Uh, let's see here what we got next. Uh, we had a thin movie. Uh, Skinnamarink. Uh, Skinnamarink, uh, C+. Yeah. Uh, it, it hurt my brain. It made my heart beat fast. It made me more afraid than anything. See it immediately. Yeah, Skinnamarink is a huge C+. It's one of the most frightening movies I've seen mm -hmm. in a really long time. Again, prepare yourself for a movie that is not paced like any movie you've mm. probably seen. Yeah. Some people might be more interested in slow experimental cinema. Uh, we're, They'd we're, be ready for I think, it. But... I think we're trying to get ahead of a backlash here. I'm not yeah. getting ahead of a backlash. I just don't want to recommend a movie to somebody and say, like, I didn't like it because of the reason why it's good. Yeah. So I just mm. want you to be ready for it. It's weird. It is abstract. But if you just let it envelop you, it's the scariest fucking thing. Yeah. And I love the pieces. And man, if this had come out last year, it would have been my top ten. Mm. So it's good January for the most part, actually. <laughs> All right, let's see. We got a couple more left. Uh, House Party. House Party is just kind of the definition of a C. Yeah. Like it's yeah. it's watchable, but not particularly funny. There's one funny chunk, but and if the whole movie had been that funny, it would have been a C plus all around. Might be worth a rental or like a stream just to get to that funny bit. But honestly. No, it's it's just <laughs> it's just sort of okay, uh, and then uh, uh, plane. Same with plane as a C. It's just yeah. kind of okay. Just kind it, of, it, yeah. it it does its thing and it gets yeah. out and it's entertaining. It's not we, not 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 horrible. Yeah, that's fine. We but you know that's not not high praise. What a treat! All right, uh, that is it for critically acclaimed. We'll be back next week with reviews of more new movies like Missing, uh, the follow up of sorts to Searching, and other things as well. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to listen to this show and all of our other uh, future podcasts without commercials, you can do that 
on our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We also have a lot of exclusive shows, uh, including shows about every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, every single episode of Star Trek in order. Uh, we did a commentary track for Monster Trucks. If you want to see more like, you know, stupid ass January movies, that's, yeah, that is the uh, the, the twenty seventeen yeah Nickelodeon movie we about, did a, we about did a, monsters that about are trucks. monsters that are trucks. We, yeah. we did we did a commentary for that feature length commentary. <laughs> you can only get it on our Patreon page. We have a uh, Discord hangouts, trivia nights, the whole shebang. Uh, thank you to all of our patrons. Without you, we could not exist, and we hope you're enjoying the steady slew of original programming we give you over there. Uh, and, of course, you can also email us if you have any uh, thoughts about any of the movies that we reviewed this week or want to uh, ask us any questions about uh, movies, film criticism, the industry, film history, recommendations, anything you want. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And, of course, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>